0: Over the past three months, we have all seen, heard and read stories of Ukrainians using whatever weapons they can find to repel the Russian troops and to defend their homeland. The devastating humanitarian fallout from Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which began on February 24th, continues to be felt globally. Six million refugees had fled the country. Food prices have spiked, raising hunger and malnutrition levels in some of the poorest communities around the world. But there is also a very sensitive but extremely critical question that we need to ask. How has the conflict affected the smuggling of weapons? And how will it continue to do so in the future? To understand why we're asking this question, we need to go back a few decades. Ukraine was one of the successor states of the Soviet Union. So it inherited the Soviet's military stockpiles on its territory when this union broke apart at the end of 1991. Here, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of guns and ammunition at the very least, according to experts. These vast amounts of weapons came in handy in 2014, immediately after the Euromaidan revolution or the revolution of dignity in Ukraine. This was the time when the Ukrainian state virtually collapsed, Russia seized Crimea, and conflict started in the Donbas region. These combination of factors meant various militias were formed and armed themselves using the Soviet Union-era stockpiles. And of course, some of these volunteer soldiers from both sides engaged in criminal behavior. At the same time, more weapons were coming in from Russia or elements within the state who were sympathetic to militias fighting the Ukrainian government. These weapons were moving from east to west from Donbass region in the east to the western region, and then across the border. Where did they go? To the Middle East, to the Western Balkans, and to Western Europe, via neighboring countries like Romania. This is why the Global Organized Crime Index classified Ukraine as one of the largest arms trafficking markets in Europe, especially when it comes to small arms and ammunition even before this latest war broke out so for this episode of the index from the global initiative against transnational organized crime we're looking at the knotty issue of how the conflict is affecting arms smuggling in ukraine i'm tenlewin in this series we'll take a deep dive onto the global organized crime index and take a look at some of the biggest organized crime threats facing countries and regions around the world. For this episode, we're speaking to three experts on Ukraine. Professor Mark Gagliotti, Principal Director of the consultancy Mayak Intelligence, and an Honorary Professor at University College London. Kathy Lynn Austin, a former United Nations arms trafficking expert, and current founder and Executive Director of the nonprofit Conflict Awareness Project and Professor Vyacheslav Aviotsky at the Eska School of Management in France. I began by asking Kathy where organized crime fits into arms trafficking in Ukraine.
1: Well, Ukraine has been very ripe for organized crime since the early nineties when privatization and globalization was happening and also with the demise of the Soviet Union. So you had all of this excess military equipment you had a lack of control. There wasn't a central arms registry. There was kind of a patchwork of laws that dealt with illicit weapons. So a lot of the weapons that were there, you would say legally, were diverted to the illegal market. And that is where Ukraine became right for organized crime. You had this excess of weapons, and then you had demand with conflicts pretty much around the globe. In the early period, a lot of weapons, for example, went to Afghanistan. That is where some of the organized crime elements really took hold. You had major arms dealers that were operating out of Ukraine. One of the most prolific arms dealers, for example, Victor Boot, who seized upon excess weaponry in the Ukraine to divert these weapons to conflict areas all over Africa. And I think that's one of the scary things now, that you have these common methods of organized crime that have been operating in Ukraine for quite a long time. They have established routes out of the country. They will find a post-war or even the current situation right for them to seize what weapons they can and to take these weapons elsewhere in the world where they can cause a lot of damage.
0: Mm, thanks for that, Cathy. And of course, yeah, the Victor Boot case was, was was famous, right? And I think he is currently serving prison sentence in the United States. But speaking also of the current conflict, Mark, the index came out before the conflict. But even then, it, it is said that conflict affected areas in Ukraine constituted the major source of illicit flows for the rest of the country. How has the latest conflict affected all of this? Can we say this has actually worsened the situation? I
2: mean, for the moment, the answer is no, and this is, this is the paradox, even though this is a time in which the Ukrainian state has, certainly in the, the early very sort of panic days of, of the, the war, essentially armed anyone who wanted a weapon and who was willing to territorially defend the country. On the other hand, what we actually have seen is for a variety of reasons, there has been a diminution in the flow out of Ukraine, of weapons. In part, that's because precisely people are arming themselves. People are sort of regard that this is a, sort of a crucial moment, either because they, they genuinely think of themselves as potentially fighting in a, a guerrilla war against uh, Russian occupiers, or just simply because they think that's the possibility. Or in some cases, we have seen organized crime groups actually buying up weapons, precisely because I think they, they regard this as a useful investment for the future. So I think for all these reasons, we haven't seen a flow out We have just simply seen a flow around within Ukraine. And there's also the fact that, uh, obviously, there's there's much more control over the borders. Although we have have seen a huge outflow of displaced refugees, there has been within that flow a certain amount of, of, of criminal activity. But again, probably not of the sort of weapons that we've seen. So I think for all these reasons, at present, the data suggests there's been less flow out. But... In some ways, this is just uh, obviously building up a problem for the future, because there has been an increased proliferation of small arms on both sides of the line of conflict. And at present, the criminal connections between Ukrainian and Russian gangsters, which we have to note, flourished, even during the period where Kiev and Moscow were in effect in an undeclared war, but obviously those have been temporarily broken. The odds are that at least in some cases, especially if the intensity of the fighting dies down, they may well reforge those links. And what we tend to find is that once other trafficking routes re-establish themselves, then that's a point in which weapons also feed into those
3: pipelines.
0: Vyacheslav, did you want to add anything?
3: I I just would like to add a, a very interesting evidence. There is a Former member of parliament in Ukraine who was uh, precisely elected uh, during this period after the 2014 uh, revolution. His name is Parasuk. And in one of his interviews, uh, he openly admitted that he had a small stockpile of these illegal weapons hidden in his garden somewhere in a rural area in the western, western Ukraine. And he explained that the, the day when the war started, they dug out these weapons. And with these illegal weapons, they joined the ranks and they started uh, taking part in this war.
1: I think sometimes people don't understand that war is a sweet spot for organized crime. So we should start imagining that organized crime is already on the ground, right? They've, They've already taken advantage of Ukraine in the past they haven't disappeared. The groups that are used to trafficking and smuggling haven't disappeared just because there is war. And what I have found, my experience in other conflict areas and war zones, is that this is a, precisely the time when organized crime begins to figure out its logistical supply chains, its roots for future money-making endeavors. So I do think that Now we need to be very cautious about thinking just because we don't have the data when we have the fog of war that we can't suspect that weapons may be going into organized crime supply chains at the moment. I think we need to be very cautious and we need to think of this in a preventative way.
0: It's difficult to imagine this at this point in time, but this conflict is probably going to end at some point, right? And you, you're all talking about the future. What will become of these munitions then? I mean, where will they go? What are the concerns? Uh, Mark, perhaps can I come back to you again?
2: Sure. And anyway, I, I want to kind of raise something that, that Cathy touched on earlier, which is in some ways that there tends to be a almost a free floating supply of illegal weapons that often float from one conflict zone to the next. You know, as, as wars start, they become a sponge soaking up a whole variety of illicit weaponry. And then when they end, the sponge is squeezed and the weapons leave often and, and head somewhere else. So I think in this case, I mean, the rather basic answer is wherever there happens to be a demand at that point at which the war ends. Because as we've heard, I mean, organized crime tends to be, shall we say, a, a bespoke customer of weapons for their own use. You know, they they may be an individual may want a gun or a few guns or whatever. The real bulk sales are precisely into uncontrolled and conflict zones. And I was talking to someone from Europol a a little while back, and we were exactly sort of chewing over the consequences of the war. He was linking two of the consequences of the war. One is that obviously there will, in due course, be an outflow of of weapons, and not just um, small arms, but also you know support weapons and the like heavy machine guns, missiles, and so forth, because everything, frankly, is for sale. And he was linking that with the fact that at present, the war is contributing to a a catastrophic constriction in exports of wheat and grain, which is obviously going to be leading to hunger, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. And hunger is another ingredient of, of conflict. And so actually, he was saying that these places are in some ways likely to experience a a, a double whammy, which is on the one hand, hunger with everything that goes with that. And the consequences, the violent consequences will be turbocharged by a fairly uh, expansive and cheap supply of post-war firearms from Ukraine. That's one possible route. But generally speaking, it will be, depending on when the war actually ends, Where are the the conflict zones
3: hungry for weapons at the time?
0: Vyacheslav, your thoughts?
3: Yeah, I would like to focus a little bit on this recovery operation that will be taking place after the end of war, I hope so, because this recovery operation is quite difficult until now. What is absolutely amazing about this conflict that uh, until now we we have been talking exclusively about light weapons, such as pistols or assault rifles, such as AK-47 or something, uh, ammunitions. But shouldn't we also forget the fact that many private citizens take possession of much heavier weapons? I remember that when Russian, they were exiting uh, through regions, such as uh, Kiev, Oblast, Sumy, and Chernigiv Oblast, they abandoned a lot of heavy equipment, such as tanks and such as armored vehicles. And some private citizens, they took possession of these armed vehicles. And uh, I remember that the Ukrainian authorities had a lot of difficulties to recover some of them. And even, I remember, there was a kind of very interesting announcement that was made. It seems to me it was in the Sumer Oblast, something like two months ago, just after the Russian troops they, they left. They said that there were a lot of cases when peasants or farmers, they dismantled a part of tanks, for example, and uh, they, they took some weapons or some, I don't know, specific parts. And the local authority, they announced Uh, that uh, all these parts should be given back. If not, these farmers, they lose their subsidies. So I think that the Ukrainian government needs to think and to be prepared for this, what they call, recovery of these weapons. Not only light weapons, but also some heavy equipment that was abandoned by the Russian troops, for
0: example. That's an interesting point. Yeah, Cathy, go ahead.
1: It's a really good point because what Ukraine is known for as a trafficking hub and sanctions busting is really for its planes and spare parts and tanks and other kind of heavy armaments as well. Whereas we're not seeing a lot of small arms and light weapons currently floating out or prior to the war floating out to conflict areas, we certainly were seeing a lot of other military type assets. So all of these components of military material everything from the heavy weapons to the small arms to the ammunition needs to be highly regulated and that's where I think we get back to the preventative aspect. Ukraine did not have a central registry for firearms even before the war began. So already it's going to be hard to tell what is going to be diverted from the legal to the illegal market what is going to go from possession, ordinary civilian possession of a firearm or a soldier's uh, possession of a firearm and into the organized crime market. So we already need to have a concern there. From my perspective, what I'm seeing is that there's so much talk, again, about what happens after the war. We should also pay attention to what's happening during the war and be prepared and have certain assets ready to be used to monitor and to act as a form of kind of watchdog in the post-conflict situation. Right now, with the volume of weaponry going into Ukraine, weapons pouring in from the United States, already it's the largest recipient now of weapons from the U.S., but there are other NATO countries that are pouring in weapons. We need a task force now to start preparing for the aftermath. We need to be sure that all of these weapons, their serial numbers are known. We know where they're going, how they're being distributed. There are specialists that can do this. We can create a small task force to begin the monitoring now. What we've seen in other places, for example, where weapons have gone in to support useful forces in Syria or Libya, there was this lack of tracking from the very beginning. And the more that we track now, the more successful we'll be able to be in understanding how organized crime is setting up its trade routes, its logistical supply chains, and finding the clients that are out there that are going to have a high demand for these weapons.
0: Great. Mark, would you like to add anything?
2: In fairness, it's unlikely that there will be a, a massive institutionalized outflow of tanks and the like from a, a post-war Ukraine for a variety of reasons, including the fact that uh, I think it, you know, it will be a rather different kind of Ukraine from, from the one we've seen in the past. But I think one of the key problems is this. On the whole, the kind of aid that is being provided by the outside world is exactly of much, much heavier kit, the sort that, although obviously there, there is overlap on the sort of man pads, the man portable air defense systems and anti-tank weapons, mainly is the sort that doesn't really uh, lend itself to, to smuggling, not least because it's not just about getting a, a tank or a missile system. You have to have the huge logistical infrastructure, the maintenance structures, and knowledge to be able to, to, to use them and keep them in, in, in service. Actually, the, the, the real risk is precisely of the weapons that are frankly all, already there. And I think in that context, to draw comparisons with places like Libya and Syria are difficult because we are dealing with a a sovereign state. Indeed, we are supporting it precisely because we believe in its sovereignty. And at present, the, the Ukrainians, for, you know, I think pretty understandable reasons in the main, do not want to see anything that's going to slow down the process of assisting them. But also they have other priorities to addressing this issue. I mean, they really do consider themselves to be in an existential struggle for their independence and their sovereignty. And in that context, if it means that, for example, you you don't uh, spend too much time sort of worrying precisely where the weapons are going, as long as the weapons are going to people who, in due course, if if a Russian platoon wanders down their street, will will start taking pot shots at them. Although I, I absolutely agree with the points that Cathy was making, we need to be thinking about it now in the outside world. We need to be thinking about what kind of structures can can most effectively monitor and control the situation. I think one of the crucial issues is precisely going to be about how we work with the Ukrainians to convince them that this is actually a priority now, or at least something that they need to be addressing now, and something that we can help them with. If one looks at, for example, the efforts that were made to try and bring intelligence reform to Ukraine particularly to, to the SBU, the Ukrainian Security Service, which it has to be said has a rather mixed record. Well, that has basically gone gone by the wayside. And there's no talk about at the moment, at least, of reforming the, Ukra- the um, Ukrainian Security Service as an institution, because it's busy. Well, likewise, I think, we, we, you know, if we are going to expect the Ukrainians to play a part in this, we also have to acknowledge that we're going to have to put resources into Ukraine on top of the huge amounts of financial and military technical assistance we're already providing. I mean, it's worth noting that the level of military assistance pledged or delivered so far is equivalent to seven times Ukraine's defence budget last year. You know, on top of that, we are also going to need to find ways of supporting law enforcement efforts. We can't honestly expect or demand the Ukrainians to be doing that themselves. And if we don't have that, then we'll be stuck with basically trying to catch it on and over the border rather than having a decent chance of actually addressing this potential outflows while it's still in Ukraine.
1: Yeah, Mark makes a really good point. This is an opportunity for us to begin working with Ukraine on these particular issues, you know, to turn it around from being a high risk country, which was recognized before the war to turn around some of its reputation as a sanctions buster, a UN sanctions buster, a European Union sanctions buster in conflict areas in Africa, for example. But to do that, we do need to get started with regular compliance issues now. It is a fog of war, um, but there are people that are responsible on the ground now for the logistical supply of the forces there is American assistance and European assistance, as Mark has mentioned, technical assistance that can go into this situation now. And if we start establishing strong tracking procedures at this precise moment, we'll be able to have a better understanding of how those weapons eventually may get diverted or if they get diverted into the organized crime channels. Another thing just to be mindful of, maybe right after the war, tanks, airplane parts, drones, heavy weapons may not go to conflict areas. But over time, as the crushing poverty of war starts to be felt at all levels in Ukraine in a post-conflict aftermath, we need to start thinking about how Ukraine organized crime and smuggling Networks that have such long standing in Ukraine and have that experience may start to be proactive, even if we're talking 10 years down the road.
0: Mm, yeah, looking at long term. Vyacheslav.
1: I
3: absolutely agree with uh, Mark and Kathy, talking about a task force that uh, we need in, in the West to set up immediately in order to reassure that this uh, legal traffic of arms. Uh, mostly provided by Western countries, is regulated. Uh, But I wanted to add also that Western countries already have been regulating this traffic because, for example, as far as I know, for example, there are teams of Ukrainian military who have been preparing outside of Ukraine and uh, they were preparing by American, Polish, uh, French instructors in order to know how to handle these weapons. And once, when these weapons were provided, once they are in Ukraine, all these teams, which are part of regular army, uh, so they are monitored. And these uh, specific weapons, they are under surveillance already. And uh, what, what I noticed also, Western countries were quite reluctant to provide great quantity of arms in the beginning. And these arms, there was a gradual increase uh, of, uh, of this traffic from Western countries to Ukraine. It has been slow and gradual. And I suppose that already there have been some measures that were set up in order to control. What I can say that In comparison with the first conflict, 2014 conflict, when there was a lot of chaos and turmoil and a lot of weapons were illegally smuggled from from the eastern part of Ukraine. Today we've got, however, a regular army, which is professional. There are measures, specific persons to monitor. However, when the frontline line is moving, very often, for example, uh, we can see that some arms, they are abandoned, and even, for example, some, some kind of very sophisticated uh, arms, such as javelin or others, might be in, in hands of pro-Russian separatists or even uh, Russian forces, etc., etc. And we don't know what is the what will happen with these arms, more specifically in this Donbass and Lugansk People Republic. This is a big question.
0: All of the speakers you 've been fantastic it 's great to have that discussion among you going but Vyacheslav, I, I have a follow up question you mentioned just now you know donbass and 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 that's that is essentially my question you know what is going to be the role of the separatist regions like Donbass um, when it comes to post conflict arms trafficking and 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 even places like odessa
3: it 's quite difficult to talk about what will happen with the separatist region such as Donbass. Now, when we are talking about this, the Ukrainian army is retreating very slowly, very slowly, but still it's retreating, and we don't know how much time uh, is needed in order to recover all these territories, how many months, or probably years. But let's imagine if uh, this uh, separatist region, Donbass, will remain there, after the end of the war, uh, there's going to be some kind of solution uh, between Ukraine and Russia, and Donbass will keep its status today. I think uh, it must be uh, the the focus of attention of uh, the Western community, because we need to be very clear about this. Even if there are kind of this phenomenon of uh, illegal uh, armed trafficking in in, in Ukraine, the institutions of Ukraine, with all these flaws and problems and issues and corruption, they are much stronger than the institutions in Donbass, where criminal groups are are dominating uh, specific areas, specific institutions, and we don't know what is going on with arms there because there are arms which are provided by the Russian Federation, of course. There are some arms, Ukrainian arms, that were seized during the the war, when I was talking about this, when the front line was moving. What will will be with these arms? Who will be monitoring them? And what I see, I see that this uh, specific region, Donbass, will become... Uh, a kind of a center of uh, international traffic of arms. Uh, we don't know exactly what are mechanisms to monitor, to, to put uh, surveillance mechanism. of this. Talking about Odessa, it's a, uh, one of the, let's say, the largest logistical hub of Ukraine and naturally is also the place of uh, a lot of different trafficking such as uh, drug trafficking, of course, different types of smuggling. And uh, naturally, if there is kind of small illegal traffic of arms going out of Ukraine, uh, it should be through this this hub. And uh, I think uh, there is a lot of corporations that we need to think about with close countries, such as Romania, probably, probably Turkey, probably some Middle Eastern countries, in order to control all this, all this trafficking.
0: Mark, would you like to add anything? Just a brief point
2: about the, the status of the Donbass and Luhansk so-called People's Republics. Um, and, you know, as Vyacheslav has said, I mean, these are real criminalised snake pits at the moment. And the interesting thing is that although... On one level, they are Russian proxy states. They are very, very imperfectly controlled ones. In fact, there's a—if I can throw out a trailer—that there, there is a report that that I co-wrote that the Global Initiative is bringing out about precisely the the role of criminality in the, in the rebellion there. But at the moment, there is actually quite a bit of talk that Russia may indeed annex these and actually bring them into possibly a a, a brand new uh, federal district. And it's worth noting that because of, of an interesting irony, which is that and clearly this would be illegal under international law. But nonetheless, for all the corruption and criminality that undoubtedly there is within Russia, at least one can say that, that Russia is, is better policed and controlled than these pseudo-states. So the interesting thing would be that, in fact, if these are genuinely annexed and if the full institutions of the Russian state and Moscow's proper control are imposed upon them, that actually, and this is a very, very small little bit of silver lining to that cloud, but that actually might help reduce the scope for that kind of total freewheeling criminalization that we've seen in the past.
0: Very interesting. Cathy?
1: One thing we need to remember also, though, in this context is that there is a large presence of foreign fighters that raises the risk of weapons returning to their individual con- countries of origin once the conflict is over. So Russia tends to deploy these proxy forces. They are more in these particular regions. We don't have a good estimate of how many are being deployed. We don't have a good sense of where they're coming from, their mix and their makeup. And we don't have a good sense of what's going to happen in the post-war conflict situation with these foreign fighters. So they typically tend to be a source of sort of the beginning of the origins of a illegal supply chain, should I say. That's what we saw, for example, with the Syria conflict. We saw weapons that were leaked out of that. Uh, conflict area leaked out of Libya. So it is true, as Mark has stated, that there's obviously more controls in these areas than in areas where there isn't sort of a sovereign state or institutionalized um, governance structure. But when we talk about these regions, the mix of foreign fighters, and the proxy elements involved, We can't really state how that's going, how those areas are going to be controlled from an arms trafficking point of view.
0: You've you've all mentioned Chechnya and the Caucasus, but do you also see any parallels with the Western Balkans? Um, You know, where of course, as we know, you know, after the collapse of former Yugoslavia, there were weapons from the conflict fell into the hands of criminal organization and mafia groups. And I think, uh, if I'm not wrong, some of these weapons are still used by you know gang members today. And I think even in Italy, do you see any parallels with Western Balkans? Are you are you worried that this this could be what, what could happen?
3: It's, um, let's say, tentatively to compare the situation in Ukraine, because in both contexts we've got a kind of civil war, we've got a lot of fighting, we've we've got a lot of involvement of foreign states, and we've got a lot of refugees also, which are spreading by by the waves, etc., etc. But I I would like to a little bit nuance this this comparison. Of course, let's say what is going on now in, in Ukraine it's not a similar conflict, it's kind of a conflict uh, which is much more violent. It probably the, the impact will be also much more important. But talking about arms smuggling, arm trafficking, I'm not quite sure if it's comparable completely. Because, for example, if we take, let's say, uh, former Yugoslavia, I remember that in this area there, there were kind of a lot of criminal groups that we were very close to uh, some different kind of militias in Serbia. There, 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 there is still, for example, uh, Kosovo mafia or Albanian mafias, which spread it over in many other European countries, such as Belgium, even France and Germany, etc., etc. And they have been involved in different types of trafficking, such as heroin and many, many other things. I don't see this kind of mafia like groups coming from Ukraine. I haven't seen, for example, Ukrainian mafia groups now present, for example, somewhere in Germany or in France. And even uh, when, when you have your look into what is going on in, in, in Ukraine, it's kind of a part of post-Soviet mafia. And Mark, of course, he he's uh, quite aware of this because he wrote this book, Warren Zakoni, about uh, what is going on. But I'm not, I don't see typically Ukrainian mafia, which uh, is quite active in these countries. I see a lot of migrants, a lot of workers that have been present in Poland, for example. There, there, have been, there had been more than one million of Ukrainian workers in Poland uh, alone before the start of the war. And I didn't see any rising criminality in Poland even though, let's say, Polish people, they, they were talking about kind of invisible migration because they, they cannot notice uh, something, uh, the increase in criminality, for example, in Poland or in in other countries.
0: Thanks very much. Kathy Mark, anything you'd like to add?
2: Yeah, I mean, actually, I want to pick up on the last point about the presence of, of Ukrainian gangs, because clearly, obviously... There is quite an overlap between the potential for weapon smuggling and you know, actually U- Ukrainians doing the smuggling, and it is interesting that we haven't seen, except on relatively small scale, Ukrainian organised crime emerging in in other countries. And obviously that that may change over time. But generally speaking, you know, particularly if you look at you know, work by people like Federico Varese about how mafias migrate, I mean, either it's embodied within major sort of diaspora transfers of population. Or else it reflects the fact that they encounter and identify some kind of ecological economic market niche, which is currently available and not already occupied. And frankly, there are precious few of those to be found in Europe, for example. Or else they are willing and frankly desperate enough to use violence to try and capture those niches. And if, if if one looks at many of the, the Balkan gangs, precisely it's because these were groups, you know, when you talk about you know, say ex Kosovo fighters and so forth, who really had nothing to lose. They had burned their bridges behind them and they, they absolutely felt they had to conquer, shall we say, new markets in the rest of Europe and were often willing to use extreme levels of violence in, in the process of doing so. I think we see a rather different kind of situation with those Ukrainian criminals. And clearly, there are criminals who have migrated out of uh, Ukraine into other parts of Europe under the pressure of the war. Generally speaking, they they, they still have interests back in, in Ukraine, to which they either hope to go back to, or else they are essentially running through proxies. They are acutely conscious of the fact that at present, Ukrainians have been given quite a a generous welcome in Europe, but that that could change that could turn and as I say there, there's a, a distinct absence of of uh, available territories and available markets, and many of those are held by organizations which precisely have have less to lose and therefore will be more willing to fight so I think this is one of the interesting things it, it shows something about the the rationality of the market process but instead what this does mean is that I think we're seeing that the the true internationalism of the uh, in, the arms trade and indeed of criminal cooperation in, in general. It's what happens is that when the Ukrainian gangsters are able to bring substantial supplies of illegal weapons out of the country, they quite quickly sell them on to other gangs, uh, sort of shadowy you know, criminal middlemen and and such like, so that they can monetize them rather than actually establishing and controlling sort of long range pipelines for the transfer of these weapons themselves.
0: Kathy, could you come in? And I'd also like you to talk a little bit about the groups that are engaged in arms smuggling, because you've talked about, you know, the the long history of Ukraine and arms smuggling.
1: Yeah, to take it up just from the gangs to the transnational arms trafficking and smuggling networks that have been operating out of these both regions for quite some time. Um, I think a commonality between the Balkans and Ukraine is that there has been little interest in the past in pursuing arms dealers. And we are talking about sort of major arms dealers that are also wreaking havoc elsewhere in the world. So in the past, Ukraine wasn't really the supplier of small arms and light weapons, it was more that there was a permissible environment with the corruption to make it a kind of easy spot for traffickers to operate out of. We did see this with Victor Boot going way back in the 90s and it, you know the continuation of this with different uh, sanctions busting elements that have come out in places like Sudan, we've seen with Ukraine. The difference I think here is that with Ukraine, it's been arms dealers operating on a transnational level that have operated from the territory, but have collected weapons elsewhere. In the Balkans, what happened was these arms dealers kind of rose to the fore on a profiteering level after the conflict and continue on to this day. And there's been very little political will to clamp down on those particular transnational arms dealers. But there was also the sourcing of weapons from those countries. I think with Ukraine now experiencing itself, the horrors of war and the great humanitarian toll that it is taking on its population, I suspect we can see greater political will in the future from the Ukrainian governments, from the institutions to clamp down on this transnational criminal organized type hub that has taken advantage of Ukraine's corruption and governance issues in the past, and to work with now NATO partners, the European Union, the U.S., in order to get a better handle, both on the corruption side, on the transnational crime side, and putting in place the very structures that are required to both have a sense of what the weapons are in the country, so creating central registries and starting to have a better understanding through serial number tracing, what the inventories and arsenals are, and to put in place um, in a post-war conflict situation a better approach to clamping down both on the potential free-flowing weapons going to other areas but also the trafficking and the dealers that the traffickers and the dealers that have so long used Ukraine as its hub.
0: Thanks, Cathy. Um, speaking of, yeah, clamping down on, on, on these illegal activities from what Cathy has said, it sounded like the previous attempts to control this trade has not been particularly successful. Mark, any thoughts on beyond what Cathy has said? Any thoughts on how to improve this uh, going forward, particularly now that there's a lot more arms in Ukraine right now?
2: We all know what actually the appropriate policy responses are. You know, recovery operations, as Vyacheslav was talking about earlier. As another is going to often these have to be sort of buybacks, better cooperation in in law enforcement as well as border control, a proper registry, all of that thing. I think that what one really needs to sort of really I think highlight at this point, and it's uh, always a slightly awkward one, particularly at the moment, is to talk about the problem of corruption because corruption is after all the the secret ingredient that undermines if i can mix my metaphors all of these particular sort of policy responses and this isn't something that has historically been a very very serious problem for ukraine and although we can hope that the new ukraine that emerges will be one that is 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 willing and able to actually address this sort of seriously and systematically we can 't necessarily guarantee it it 's always difficult at the moment because given that you know, obviously Ukraine is the, the the victim of an entirely unprovoked and exceedingly brutal invasion. but nonetheless you know we have to recognize this because these are the kind of difficult conversations we also need to be having with the Ukrainian government right now again this this is something of a leitmotif that you know one can 't just simply wait until after the war and then say oh let's let's put together a, a list of things we need to do there needs to be some understanding within Ukraine about the importance of addressing corruption for a whole variety of reasons. One of which is exactly ensuring that these various other methods, measures brought in to try and address the illegal arms flow are not therefore rendered pretty much useless by the high levels of corruption, particularly within the state
3: structures. I just like to uh, react to what Marx uh, had been saying uh, about corruption. Of course, Ukraine is well known about uh, high levels of corruption, typically. But what uh, I can tell that finally this corruption has been decreasing gradually. I noted this decrease, uh, more specifically during the under the president presidency of. Even though uh, there are. A lot of issues that remain, more specifically, for example, about this anti-corruption court uh, that establishment was blocked, and there was a lot of pressure on behalf of the international community, I mean more specifically the United States and the European Union, and uh, there are still some issues of uh, corruption. Uh, Of course, we we can probably understand that in the middle of of the war of high-intensity Probably it might appear as a secondary issues. It is not, absolutely not. But I am quite optimistic about uh, what will happen with corruption in Ukraine. For example, Ukraine is a quite a transparent society. For example, all these issues related to corruption, for example, there, there was still corruption on the uh, border Even when uh, there were all this traffic through the border now, is of course, under the control of state. But these problems, uh, they they are talked about. Uh, Media are involved in this. Ordinary citizens, they report. And there is, uh, I would say, a strong uh, civil society in Ukraine which uh, has been involved. And all this anti-corruption struggle must be based on two factors strong uh, international pressure and uh, civil uh, civil society which is uh, involved in the construction of the building or the co- what they call new Ukraine. It, and we shouldn't forget that the future entry of Ukraine in the European Union, because they have just received, received this status of candidate country, is conditioned on the anti-corruption measures
0: more specifically. Thanks, Vyacheslav, Kathy, and Mark. I want to come to both of you. I mean, Vyacheslav is optimistic um, about tackling corruption post-conflict, particularly because of the future that it might become a member of the European Union. I want to I want to hear your thoughts as to whether do you feel the same, uh, or do you think that you know a capable leadership will have a mitigating effect on illicit you know, arms smuggling or, or, or just illicit activities? Do you think there might be more appetite to address organized crime and corruption issues after, after the war if there is capable uh, leadership? Cathy, perhaps um, I'd come to you first.
1: Well, I think that the experience of Ukraine of war directly in this instance um, should create stronger political will and a better understanding and comprehension of the necessity for getting on top of these illicit arms flows that have been wreaking damage in so many other places. I also think civil society needs to play a very important role, but to do that, it has to have access to government structures, to NATO, to Europe, to home governments, to both be able to report when it sees breaches of government provisions, or when it has information on organized crime elements. So that access needs to be guaranteed and civil society and other stakeholders need to be included in talks and institutional responses. I think this will make for a strong watchdog approach. Um, It will enhance public pressure On the Ukraine government for better institutionalized, better institutions and governance structures. And I think again, the overwhelming experience of war itself should lend itself to clamping down on the transnational criminal organizations that have been operating out of the country before the war and certainly will be trying to rise to the fore in a post-war situation, but with the help, the technical assistance, as my other colleagues have talked about, with a robust civil society, and with this experience of war directly, the hope is that the permissible environment that pre-existed will no longer have the same kind of opportunity and advantages that it did previously.
0: Thanks so much, Cathy. Mark, uh, your thoughts?
2: Look, we'd obviously much rather be optimistic than pessimistic, and there are all kinds of good good reasons to think that things could well be heading in the right direction. I think that we also have to be cautious. I mean, first of all, actually the experience of war we've seen in so many other situations does not necessarily create a stronger, more, more coherent, and more law-based state in many cases. And if you look at uh, Ukraine in particular, However, the war ends, whenever the war ends, there will be a massive and difficult reconstruction effort. And a lot of that reconstruction will be funded by the West for reasons both uh, moral and pragmatic. And that is, there's no way of getting around it. Going to be a huge bonanza for both organized crime and also corrupt officials who will seek to embezzle it. And, you know, I, I wish it were otherwise. But um, given that even the Marshall aid plan suffered from, from this to a degree, and that was frankly very, very heavily monitored in a way that really would breach the, the understandings of sovereignty that the Ukrainians would hold. So I I, I think that you know, we're going to have to accept that that, that is going to be a, a problem and a temptation. That said, I mean, yes, EU membership may well be a sufficient carrot that helps sort of drive elites in those directions. Though, again, it's going to be a long, long process. And I think we've seen in the Balkans that actually you know, early promises of EU membership does not necessarily help if they feel that the process actually has stalled. So this is something that both Ukraine, but also the European Union, will actually have to work hard at maintaining the, the momentum for. But again, let's not be too pessimistic. There is a chance for then a reconstruction of state capacity because again, it's worth noting that, that uh, law enforcement agencies are also suffering dramatically as a result of the war. Uh, a competent and uh, you know a leadership that is also committed to genuine, genuinely sort of developing and cleansing the country is is going to be very important for making sure that Ukraine continues to work productively with the West. And not because the West has all the answers, but because precisely we we, we can at least provide a certain degree of sort of bolt-on state capacity and and guidance. And really importantly, I would say, harnessing the intangible issues of legitimacy and national purpose. Um, There is an extent to which actually so much will depend on whether it's Zelensky or someone else. When the war is done, and assuming it's not a very, very ugly piece that has to make nasty concessions simply because Ukraine is exhausted. Well, when it comes is that precisely, there will be that critical moment of defining the new Ukraine. And, you know, it, it, it isn't necessarily immediately visible in institutional terms or whatever. But if actually that sense of something new being built can be harnessed, so yes, so civil society comes in. But also more broadly, you actually have a society and perhaps more importantly, an electorate, which in the past has been very willing to frankly forgive or ignore serious allegations or evidence of criminality amongst its representatives. But an electorate that is now demands higher standards from its leaders well that could absolutely have quite a positive impact on addressing this problem
0: last question and this is for all three of you you know you've all talked throughout this discussion about what the international community can do to help right that includes setting up things like a task force supporting civil society etc if you were advising world leaders who are supporting ukraine what would you tell them are the top 3 things that they should do to tackle organized crime in Ukraine uh, post-conflict, particularly when it comes to preventing arms smuggling. Kathy, can I start with you first?
1: Well, I'd like to start with what can be done now as well, and that is regular compliance visits by those who are providing the weapons. We also need to ensure that the weapon transfers include right now strong tracking procedures. I think those will help go a long way. As someone who tracks illegal arms traffickers on a daily basis, the post-war situation of Ukraine is already giving me nightmares. And I think what needs to occur now is creating the institutions and the structures to actually address the arms arsenals that are being sent to Ukraine to start looking institutionally of how there will be a stockpile control in the post-conflict situation. A lot of the provisions, as Mark has, has mentioned, we know what those tools are, but we need to have a prepared response, and that prepared response needs to begin now.
3: Yes, I I completely agree that we need to react now. And that's why, for example, I would like to mention uh, the first measure for me, you know, this anti-corruption court that uh, was still blocked just before the outbreak of the war in February 2022. The solution has not been yet found. I think that uh, the government, the Ukrainian government, I know that they are, of course, completely overwhelmed with what is going on in the front line, but I think that they shouldn't postpone the solution of this uh, problem related to the creation of independent institutions capable of fighting corruption. More or less, I think that they need to come up with some kind of Romanian model where this uh, anti-corruption body which was created, and it, it has been extremely efficient, and I think that what now the West or the Western country they are asking from Ukraine, it's more or less to reproduce the experience in Romania, uh, which ha- had been extremely efficient. I think that this is the the first thing that needs to be done. Second point, I am coming back to the proposal made by the UK. Uh, they promised to train every four months 10,000 troops from Ukraine to transform them into professional army. I think that this kind of training should be also provided to the Ukrainian police. Because even though we've got honest people who have been recruited, they need to be trained in order to fight more efficiently. For example, this phenomenon of corruption, of course. And I think that this kind of training program uh, shouldn't be postponed, and probably number three in the last one. I think that also Western countries need to uh, cooperate more actively with the law enforcement in Ukraine, and I know that this cooperation already took place, for example, in uh, when they were fighting against drug trafficking, which... Conduced to very good results, a lot of seizures in Ukraine during the last five years, for example, it was a, a record seizures. And I, I'm absolutely uh, certain that this is possible also if, uh, for example, let's say Western countries cooperate more actively with Ukraine now, not in, in, in one year or in two years when the, the this war finishes.
0: Thanks so much, Vyacheslav. Um, last but not least, Mark.
2: I, I would say briefly yes first of all absolutely support for the law enforcement agencies which means obviously you know assisting them with with reform but also direct uh, practical assistance and again I think you know in this it's, it's a that's a mix of providing kind of know-how and, and technical expertise and just that sense that they they matter and that what they do is is, is important. The second thing is, look, again, if, if we assume that the war ends in, in, a, in a positive way, the government of Ukraine will now be once again in control of some communities that will feel marginalised from the mainstream. They might actually feel that they have been sort of reconquered by, by outsiders. And we're talking about small numbers, but nonetheless significant ones. And I think it, it is going to be important that these communities be reintegrated as effectively, but productively and positively as possible it's tempting to, to be sort of angry in in victory, but that actually just simply creates conditions whereby sort of crimogenic conditions will, will continue. You know, again, we know that there is often a, a direct connection between communities that feel marginalized, isolated, or even oppressed by the central regime and their willingness to engage in criminal acts and indeed also to to hoard and potentially use illegal weapons themselves. So, you know, I think there's going to have to be a definite, uh, strong effort to open a hand of friendship to people who, you know, only a few days or months earlier were, were frankly shooting at you, and that's going to be hard, but it's necessary. And the third point in terms of the outside community, I mean, I think there really will have to be this, this balance of of tough love, that on the one hand, you know, this is particularly going to be important for the European Union, given the sort of the aspirations of membership. It's going to have to avoid its usual temptation, which we saw so perniciously happen in in the Balkans, which is to make nice promises, but do very little about it. They're going to have to maintain the initiative, but also to frankly favor leaders and regimes, the so-called stabilocrats, who may not really be reformist, may not really be interested in legality and the like, but at least keep things quiet and therefore not a problem for Brussels. So, I mean, I think one has to accept that genuine reform is, by definition, often a fairly disruptive process. And I think, you know, we we need to sort of balance providing a lot of practical assistance, but also, shall I say, moral assistance in a sense that there is a, a bright future ahead with a willingness to not indulge. And particularly this will come down to corruption and breaches of the rule of law. And if we can address that, then that will clearly have a particular impact on criminal flows through and out of Ukraine, including but not confined to the flow of illegal weapons.
0: Thank you for listening to the sixth episode of the index, and to Mark, Cathy, and Vyacheslav for joining us today. If you want to read the country profile for Ukraine, it's available in the podcast notes, where you can also find a link to the Global Organized Crime Index. The Global Organized Crime Index lists 193 countries around the world and scores their levels of criminality and resilience. It's a fascinating resource and can be accessed by anyone. Just head over to ocindex.net. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a look at corruption and state-embedded actors in Venezuela. That's it for this episode of The Index from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Delia